every culture has certain strengths. Like I think the collectivist uh, dimension of strength of some cultures is a helpful corrective for Australian individualism. And so all cultures need to be evaluated and all cultures need to have areas where they can work and become more aligned with God's values uh, as, they, as they come to understand those and as they interact with other cultures. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast here at Third Space Studios at Sorobol Kirui. It is um, fantastic to have you along with us again, whether you're listening or watching us on YouTube. And I am joined, as usual, by my regular co-host, Stu Crawshaw. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Joel. Hello. Yeah. How are you? It's good. We're wearing the same shirt. We are wearing the same it's shirt. Very nice. Got the memo. Yeah, got the memo. That's great. Um, and joined again by uh, Children's Pastor of Sorobol Church, Tim Bilharts. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, because I didn't get the memo. Where was, where was my memo? That's a good question, yeah. Stu. Where was the I'll <laughs> take that good. as uh, uh, positive feedback. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's all right. Um, guys, uh, we've got a very exciting uh, special guest along with us today, which I'm very excited about. Um, Ian Hussey joins us. Uh, your, your work has influenced a lot. Um, it's great to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Great to be with you. It's been great. Now, uh, we have um, primarily been using Describing Australians, your essay you've wrote, written on um, Australian culture. Um, and it's uh, part of your work at Malian College. I'd just love, um, rather than me introduce you, I'd love you to introduce us, introduce yourself to us um, as well as the listeners. Uh, what do you do day to day at the college? I actually wear two hats. Uh, I'm employed four and a half days a week as a lecturer at uh, Malian Theological College, which is the, the Baptist training college up here in, in Queensland. And I lecture in the area of ministry and practice. So I do things like preaching, worship. Uh, I look after the field education program. So I see you guys, you've got some interns there. So that's uh, through Moore College. So I do that sort of job with, uh, with the Baptists up here in Queensland. Right. I do things like uh, church vitality, church health. Is that my, my, my teaching areas? I'm also the director of postgraduate studies up here. So we've got a, a small uh, PhD program that I, I look after as well. Uh, my, so I'm four and a half days a week at Manion Theological College and then half a day a week, I'm what they call the regional minister for the metro central region of Queensland Baptist. So sort of a, a bishop for the, uh, I've got 22 churches in the, the central part of Brisbane, which are, are my responsibility. So it's really nice that I'm connected with local churches and meet with the pastors and hear what's happening there and then go back to the, the training institution to be able to uh, hopefully make uh, my teaching very relevant. Uh, I, I preach a fair bit in my local church as well as preaching around the place. Uh, I do a bit of worship leading very badly, but I enjoy it. And uh, yeah, that's sort of, uh, that's what I do day to day. That's great. What uh, instrument do you play? I play, probably um, the bass is my best instrument, but when I lead worship, I play guitar. Awesome. But I also love playing the drums. Oh, wow. You, so you do that all at the same time? <laughs> Is that I why it goes badly? badly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I try and do one at a time, although I, I'm, I'm not, I'm functional, not great at anything. Oh, I'm sure you're doing a good job anyway. Um, but when we often have guests on the podcast, though, we always like to ask them um, how they became a Christian. So I'd, I'd love for you, for you to be able to tell us that before we get started into checking out your work. Yeah. Well, this is going to be a heartwarming story for you Sydney Anglicans, but I <laughs> was uh, 
I was saved in a Sydney Anglican church. Uh, right. My uh, mother was a nominal uh, Christian and she used to go to church occasionally. But I, I've got a cousin who was about the same age as me. And my mother thought it would be one up on her sister if she could get me to do the confirmation class when my auntie couldn't get her son to do the confirmation class. So I got pushed along to confirmation class. And the text for us to read through was John Stott's Your Confirmation. And at the end of the book, there's the Believer's Prayer. And I can still remember uh, having read through that, generally agreeing with what the, the vicar was saying and what the book was saying and praying that Believer's Prayer at the end of, of uh, uh, Your Confirmation. So I went on to be confirmed by Marcus Lone. Uh, but I lost my way and ended up becoming a Baptist. But, uh, <laughs> I still have a, a very warm place in my heart for Sydney Anglicans. And you know, I think a lot of my philosophy of ministry is shaped by the commitment to scriptures, uh, the just general um, tenure of, uh, of uh, Sydney Anglicanism is uh, something I really warm to. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, how did you end up uh, up in Queensland? I was teaching in Western New South Wales uh, and my wife had family in Brisbane and they were going through a bit of a difficult time and she wanted to explore moving back to Brisbane to be with her family and she took my CV with her to an interview with the Department of Education and they ended up offering me a job in Brisbane without an interview which we sort of went, well, maybe God was in that. <laughs> and so we, we moved to Brisbane so it's, uh, in uh, 1989. So been up here 30 years. They almost count us as locals after 30 years. <laughs> right. They're still a bit suspicious, particularly around state of origin time. Right. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of inquisitions going on. I was going to ask you, who do you go for in state of origin, Queensland or New South Wales? I, I try not to disclose that. I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> yes. yes, I do appreciate that. Sensitive topic. Yeah, it could get in trouble. Um, uh, in this uh, season of the Shock Absorber, we've been looking at uh, primarily things that are happening in the culture in the 2010s and 2020s. And having a look at some of your work um, that we um, happened upon our teaching pastor, Karen, um, actually came upon your work. And um, we've been having a look at that throughout um, the season in the different uh, kind of cultural dimensions that you've mentioned, in particular in describing Australians, your essay. I'd just like, before we get into it, I'd just love to you to... Um, Give us an insight into why you decided to write Describing Australians. Hmm. I, I teach preaching and one of the things that I struggle with in my preaching and I picked up that a lot of the students struggle with in their preaching is application. Hmm. Particularly, I think it's easy to come up with very generic applications in our preaching, but I've found in my life that sometimes it takes somebody to be quite specific to target an area in my life as a challenge or an encouragement. And I was thinking through how to do that. And I was also wrestling with the idea of contextualization and the role of preachers primarily being that of a contextualizer. So I think John Stott talked about um, preachers being bridge builders between the context of the scriptures and the context of the congregation. Uh, and what he was talking about, I think, is contextualization, which is this thing that we, God chooses to use human beings to take his eternal divine message and apply it in a particular context. And that's it's probably a, a podcast in itself as to why he does that. But, yeah, fully. but just emphasising the fact that we are 
standing between two cultures. So we're standing between the ancient Hebrew culture or the ancient Greek culture and, in our case, 21st century urban Western culture uh, and, and our need to be able to uh, be that bridge builder and to make that contextualisation. So what I did was I had to say, okay, what does Australian culture look like uh, in just very general terms? And then I, I went to a whole range of uh, preachers who are also biblical academics, biblical scholars, and asked them to take a particular genre. So I uh, got Murray Kappel to, to do um, Genesis uh, or the Pentateuch and say, okay, there's the Pentateuch, here's Australian culture. Will you be the bridge builder between those five books and the Australian culture? And just talking in general terms about how, what the message is, how particular the message of the Pentateuch really applies to the Australian context. And now I've got to break the Bible up according to genre and say Pentateuch, Old Testament narrative, wisdom literature, Pauline epistles, non-Pauline epistles, Revelation, Gospels. Uh, Bill Salia did uh, 1 John, 1, 2, 3 John for us. So, um, yeah, trying to really come up with some ideas for making specific application of the biblical text to 21st century Australian context. And to do that, I had to try and roughly describe the Australian context. Well, that's, that sounds like a lot of work, but a lot of interesting work. Um, so it, we've we've kind of run through a number of the different cultural dimensions, but I, I would love um, to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, I, I suppose, is that um, could you describe those cultural dimensions for people just to have an understanding of where we're kind of trying to go with this podcast? Sure. Yep. So there's been a lot of research, secular research into culture because business has become globalised and so Businesses pretty quickly discovered if they took an American and put them in Samoa, that it just didn't work because the American just didn't understand Samoan culture. So they, they've invested a lot in trying to define and describe what different cultures look like, uh, different, different ethnic cultures. Uh, I think it's equally applicable to organisational cultures as well, but uh, different ethnic cultures. So there's been a lot of research done, and, and you mentioned Nardin and Sturz, who uh, sort of have done a good job putting together lots of different research approaches into what they identified as five uh, cultural dimensions. I might run through them interestingly and just, I think we wrote, I wrote that chapter in 2018. A lot's happened since yeah. 2018. And, and just reflect perhaps on the way that COVID has shown, has highlighted aspects of the Australian culture. Mm -hmm. So that might uh, be interesting. So actually the first thing is, environment, attitude of the environment. So what they found is that generally most cultures, ethnic cultures across the world, fall into two camps or at least there's a continuum between two extremes related to attitude of the environment. So one attitude to the environment is that the environment is there to be mastered and the other end of the spectrum is that the environment is there to be nurtured or that we belong to it. And it's very clearly evident in Australia because the Europeans tend to want to master the environment and we've become increasingly aware of the fact that the First Nations people have a far more nurturing attitude towards the environment. And it's interesting you see this clash over mining where uh, many Australians will go, if it's in the ground, take it. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, and many Australians find it frustrating then when some Indigenous groups say, hang on a minute, this is our, this is sacred land. You can't just come here and dig it up. And, and it's sort of that's the two ends of the spectrum wrestling with each other. And generally, Australians are far more at the, the mastering, dare I say, exploitation end of the attitude to the environment. Um, what's interestingly changed in the last couple of years has been the bushfires. 
So I think we'll look back and say that the bushfires of 2019 were a major mark in Australia's history because all of a sudden environmentalism uh, took a step up in the awareness of a whole range of, of people. And so, um, so that's the first one, environment mastery or nurture. Um, and Australia tends to be more at the mastery, and particularly the Europeans, whereas the Indigenous cultures are more nurturing. Just before you head on, uh, you continue on that, we actually had Michael Tuckett on um, the podcast a couple of episodes ago. He's a, a pastor of MacArthur Indigenous Church, and he was talking about how um, we should all be custodians of the land now, like not just First Nations people, as you said. Um, we, it's like He's trying to encourage us that everyone, regardless of where we are or where we actually place, that we should be custodians of the land. So it's just interesting to pull that out of, from exactly what you were saying. Yeah. 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 The other factor that's changed, I think the bushfires were a significant mm. stimulus, but the other thing is that the education system has for a number of years now been highlighting environmentalism and, and generally talking about, you know, what's happening in terms of generations and different attitudes, that generally the younger a person is, the more environmentally concerned they are. The problem is old people like me are less switched on to the environmental issues than the people I'm trying to preach to or the people I'm trying to minister, particularly in those younger generations and so like and that's provable by the fact that the younger you are the more likely you are to vote green uh, because those sort of issues that the greens are raising resonate with people who've come through particularly the state education system but also to some degree the christian education system because they've all been influenced by the curriculum thing so that that's the perhaps one thought particularly i'm, I'm not much into youth ministry but that's I don't know a lot about it at all, but that's one mm. thing I, I would sort of highlight and say environment, the environment is one of the key concerns for younger people. And West churches, if we want to be relevant, we need to be talking about the environment, even though politically it's uh, sometimes a little bit tricky for us. How do you think the this dynamic between mastery and harmony has played out in the way that different nations have tried to respond to the coronavirus and, and having a, a virus, a disease that we... Yeah, in some ways, can't master, but also trying to master through vaccines and healthcare. And how does that play out? That's a good thought, isn't it? Yeah, I wonder if. I guess it, it, you, you've got to assume that people see the virus as being part of the environment. Mm. Um, I don't know if necessarily they do, but it's an interesting thought that some cultures perhaps would be more inclined to go, well, this is just what happens. Uh, whereas other cultures are wanting to master it and say, we've got to get COVID under control. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I'm just thinking that in those societies where there is higher levels of mortality, so generally poorer parts of the world, they're probably not nearly as traumatised by COVID as, as we are in the West, who, who uh, have tried to control our environments and, and minimise death and harm, where for them, they just go, well, it's just part of life. People die. Mm. Mm. How do you think, and uh, you've spoken about environmentalism before, Stu, is there anything you want to add in there before we move on to the second dimension? Yeah, I think what, Ian, what you said about the education system playing a role is really interesting because I remember when, I, I don't know if you remember, but I, I think we're similar kind of Gen X sort of age, but I remember when I was growing up in school, there was a big focus on nuclear war and the possibility of nuclear war ending civilization and there was also the big demonstrations down in Tasmania where they were trying to fight for the Franklin River and I remember the emotional connection I had to that issue that I tried not to 
use too much paper because they were logging trees down in Tasmania for paper. And I sometimes find it interesting that people are now using paper straws where I would have not used a paper straw because I didn't want to chop a tree down. But now people are using a plastic straw. Oh, they're saying plastic's worse for the environment. So, yeah, my head shift there has been a challenge. So I think that's just a small example. But I think that's a great example of the generations having different attitudes towards even yeah. that one topic. Yeah. yeah. Should we I remember doing a poster on Save the Whales. Oh, that yes. Was, that was a big that one was too. cutting-edge stuff. Right? Yeah, Starting I remember. Like up until that point, I think we just said, but even from a Christian perspective, if God's, God told us to steward it, that means we can use it. Uh, and, and I think we've, we've come to have a more sophisticated understanding, uh, even, in, even in Christian circles. Mm. Should we move on to the, the second dimension? We should, or we'll be here all day. So. Oh, um, to be honest, social organisation. I'm, I'm, I'm actually happy to be here all day. This is a great conversation already. <laughs> uh, so social organisation, which is about um, collective versus individualistic. So Australia is very individualistic. Whereas most people in the world actually are collectivists, so uh, we're, we're very focused on our individual rights. We tend to live in nuclear families, which is mum, dad, and the kids. Whereas in collectivist societies, very interested, much more interested in the community and also the extended family. So again, there's interesting con- like we can observe this in this uh, Australian culture with, with Indigenous people who are more collectivist. Uh, I remember visiting a, a community in Colorado and talking one of the kids there and him talking about his relatives and this you know he's my uncle he's my uncle he's my uncle he's my uncle and I'm going coming from a you know individualistic European society it blew my mind the the the, the network of relationships that, that existed there so uh, Australia's very individualistic we're like oh, even amongst western nations we're 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 quite strongly up the uh, chain there um, one of the spin-offs of this is the growing sense of identity being self-defined. So, uh, like, if you ask some people, who are you? They will say, I'm part of this clan, would be their primary identifier uh, according to this extended family. Ask a, a Westerner on a university campus these days, uh, what are you or who are you? They'll say, I am uh, queer. Uh, or I am um, communist or, or something. So you, your identity is something you identify yourself, and that and that is a spin-off of individualism. And and uh, yeah, for our young people growing up, this is a, a major clash point. Like as Christians, we have a, a an understanding of identity that we are a child of God. Uh, we are part of in Christ, which is probably a a, a really useful. Uh, term for satirical, I want to use satirical, but it turns up a way of understanding your salvation. Yes, we're justified by faith, but equally in the New Testament, it talks about salvation as being in Christ. That our identity in Christ is our is our salvation. I think that's that's so different to the way other people are thinking about their identity. And um, anyway, so that, that that's a spin-off for, for youth ministry. I was I was thinking of of social organisation. Did you want to talk about that or I'll go on to, to the next one? Yeah, sure. no, I think it'd be interesting to hear more about what you think about that because I, I, we, we identified that a bit when we did the Taylor Swift episode a couple of weeks ago and we talked about the individualism of uh, of being able to choose my own identity and the, the options for choice seem to be getting more and more and uh, pe- 
people are even able to choose their gender now, which is a new phenomenon that's emerged. And we talked about how Taylor Swift was championing that sort of uh, move towards individualism, that uh, she's kind of embraced a lot of the uh, gay rights movement and how that's sort of encouraging more and more our young people to, yeah, self-identify with who you think you are. And I, I think you're right. Like you mentioned Colleen Abro, we're really good friends with uh, uh Lots of Aboriginal people from Brewarrina, Colleen O'Brien, Gilgandra and uh, the Gordons out at Brewarrina have uh, taught us a lot about that more collectivist point of view where you, you do identify with the group. And I suppose for us in the West, it's been a really long journey from Descartes, who I suppose was one of the first philosophers in the West a few hundred years ago, who said, you know, I think, therefore I am. So he was saying that instead of we think because we are, this is who we are, it's now kind of in our culture, it's more of a... I self-identify as a surfer or a skater or a certain gender or, and we're used to that in our culture. But I think you're right, it's impacted our churches because we, we do have an individualistic element where we are individually saved, but we also have an in, a collectivist aspect where we become part of the body of Christ. So we were trying to unpack that a little bit in a mm. few podcasts. Mm. We're really keen to hear your thoughts on that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's one of those both ends, I think, we've... Mm. we've um, well, I, I know I've tended to sort of dichotomise things. It's sort of either or, but it's a both end. We are, in, in the sight of God, we are both individual, but we're also part of mm. the collective body of Christ. Uh, and so as an individual, it's about personal choice that I do have to pray the I do have to pray the prayer of repentance to be saved as an individual. But also I belong to the, the, the collective of the community of the saved and my salvation is equally tied up in in that belonging to that community as well. Uh, and um, there's a middle ground there, I think, between the two extremes that we, we, we should pursue. It's interesting to see some of that um, both end also coming through in uh, the, the, the hyper-individualism of the younger generations and this idea of identity politics. Because, yes, I want to be completely free to identify however I choose all of these different options but when I do choose, I then become part of the tribe that is like that. And so then you see um, a lot of the tribalism that comes out and the way that, well, if my tribe believes this, then I, well, I guess I believe that too. And you, you then can you then get caught dragged around by the tribe in terms of the beliefs and the things that are important to you. And, um, yeah, so just, I don't know if you've seen that as well, evidence. Well, the protests, the anti-vax protests are an interesting where – I identify with that group, but actually it's a very diverse group. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I'm, yeah, it I'm is. marching for a whole range of different reasons, but they've, they've become a tribe who uh, roam the streets and uh, wear the white shirts and, and stuff. So, no, it's interesting. That, um, mm. Should we move on to the, the next um, cultural dimension? Yes, um, power distribution. So this relates to how comfortable people are with hierarchy in society and or... Uh, different treatment of different people at different levels of society according to their born status or, or, or their status in, in the society as well. So Australia is very strongly egalitarian. And uh, I think you mentioned that you might have talked a bit about this sort of from our, our convict roots. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the big manifestation of that is the tall poppy syndrome, which is it's a, a fairly unique uh, just need to make a comment myself here. I haven't travelled widely, and and that in a way 
means that I'm not as well positioned to talk about this sort of cultural stuff as others who have. Uh, but others who have travelled more widely confirm this thing about Australia really does have an issue with the tall poppy syndrome, which means that when people sort of rise, appear to rise up above the rest of us, we, we want them to pull a head in and, and just be one of just be one of us. And, and so you get the situation where the Prime Minister is addressed by his first name or even ScoMo. Yeah. In many cultures, that would just be unheard of, that it's, he's the Honourable Prime Minister, uh, he's treated with respect. And you, you, you talk about it in Australia and people go, I can't get that, mate. <laughs> he's just like us, he's just one of us. Um, again, with the COVID thing, the vaccination's been an interesting one. When the vaccinations first arrived, did the politicians go out and be the first ones to get the jab or did they have to wait at the end of the queue like everyone else? Mm -hmm. And there was this sort of sort of tension. So some people going, they really should go first. Uh, but then there was others going, no, no, they should wait until the end of the line like the rest of us sort of thing. And, um, yeah, it was interesting looking on and thinking how is egalitarianism playing itself out in, in, in that thing. But tall poppy is, is the big key manifestation and it affects us at all sorts of places and in churches as well. So that leading in churches tends to be a difficult thing in Australia because of the, the tall poppy syndrome. It's not quite as bad in the Anglican church because you've got the more formal structures of, of vicars and bishops and archbishops. In the Baptist church, it's just free for all, mate. And yeah, the pastor, he's just one of us. And if he does the wrong thing, well, we just knock him into shape. And it's, it's pretty tricky business leading, trying to lead a group uh, in, in those sorts of contexts. So that's power distribution. Yeah, I'd actually love, um, really interested, Stu, to hear your reflections on that you've been involved in church leadership for a long time. What do you think about the tall poppy syndrome in terms of being a church leader? Yeah, I think it, you, if you're not uh, conscious of it, you're, it's in the back of your mind as you lead a church. Like your experience is definitely influenced by the tall poppy syndrome. Uh, you mentioned ScoMo. He comes from the Southern Shire, Ian, as you're probably aware. And uh, he's a shark supporter, as you may or may not be aware. But uh, I'm, one, of, one of the other hats I wear is I'm chaplain to the Cronulla Sharks. And um, okay. I was down at the shark park with the boys when ScoMo came along with the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea. And I was, it was just, even for me, as someone who's used to the tall poppy syndrome, it was a bit, um, it was a strange thing I saw uh, at the end of the game where ScoMo, the Prime Minister of Australia, was walking across the Oval with all the other fans, with the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, and they were eating a pie and they were talking <laughs> as they walked past me as though they were just two other blokes. In the, and the, and I'd parked my car next to his limousine. And, and when I got back to the car, he hadn't quite got back to the limousine, but his driver was there just on Facebook on his phone. And I just said, oh, how you going, man? He's like, oh, yeah, good. And I said, how's the Prime Minister? I said, he said, oh, yeah, I think he's all right. And I'm just like thinking, how's Australia? Like if it was a prime, if it was a president of the United States, there'd probably be a helicopter land on the Oval and take him off and security guards talking into their wrists and their stuff. Well, was the thing when um, Joe Biden went to the Vatican recently as part of the that big thing, like an entourage of 87 cars or something, yeah, yeah, driving yeah. him around well, Vatican and Rome. And, yeah. and I think I think Australia is changing. I mean, I'm interested in the domestic terrorism element that's creeping into it, into our considerations now. I think that is changing things. I remember a, a TV show, The Chaser, Chasers? Was it? I think yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Chasers. They, they were a com comedy group in Australia a while ago, and one of their stunts was during some big international mm. gathering of leaders, they got in a pretend car and pretended to be 
people from another country and drove up through the security guards and the guards are so laissez-faire about it they just let them drive through and they went into this big OPEC meeting or something like and they finally got arrested by the police but it was hilarious to watch the skit on TV but I look back on that and that was only under 10 years ago and I, I can't imagine that happening today I don't think we'd be quite as relaxed as we used to be but I don't know if you've noticed it changing Ian but I think when it comes to churches I think it is a a difficult one because on it's like you said before it's not an either or is it because on one hand we're a priesthood of all believers and so that impulse is good so I think we can redeem that Australian egalitarian impulse uh, but also on the other hand it is a myth like the egalitarian myth is that we're all equal and we're all and we're not really like there are still people in power there are still people richer than others and we sometimes whitewash our culture as we're all mates and we're all getting on with each other but sometimes we miss some of the uh, inconsistencies and the inequalities in our culture because of that too so i think i, I like what you're saying about the practicalness of this research because actually preaching into that context there is an element of church governance where it's a bit difficult too. I mean, uh, you mentioned you're, you're a Baptist. I'm married to uh, my wife, Louise. She comes from the Baptist church, and I was quite familiar with um, the Anglican system. But then when I went to a Baptist church, I was quite surprised by the difference between having elders and, and having senior pastor. And I think whatever the, the actual system of governance that a church has, I think you've got to sort of bring this egalitarianism into it and that people are very individualistic. But um, I'm hoping to redeem that as much as we can, that we can, we can actually lean into that as Australians. And, yeah, we're all, we're all the people of God together. And, um, but, yeah, but also challenging that at another level to say, you know, it is right and proper that we have leaders and make calls and move us forward as well because we have under-shepherds under the great shepherd Jesus too. So I don't know if you've got any experience with that yourself. Mm. Um. Well, I, was, I was just thinking, I was really, I was glad, glad you brought up that either or again for this one, because I think this is one where it really does play out quite well. I think both, clearly the the Christian message is egalitarianism. We're all, the ground of the cross is level and, and we're all stand equal. So Paul's able to say, you know, there's no, in, in terms of salvation, there's no men or women, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, we're all, all Christians. So Christianity is definitely egalitarian, but there's also a lot about honour in the Christian faith. And if we've gone too far in the egalitarian place direction, we, we benefit from uh, people from Asia who understand honour much better than us. That's and really helpful. I, I can remember seeing the way that some of my friends honoured their parents, uh, which was quite countercultural to me, who had been very strongly egalitarian. And there's that middle ground in church life where Yes, we're all equal, but also there is some sense of some people are worthy of honour and respect. Um, that that that's something to to aim for, I think. That's fascinating. I mean, even coming back to uh, talking about uh, being more collectivist. So when you you reminded me of other cultures that are more collectivist, I always think of like the um, in Italian families, like the Italian nonnas passing down recipes down down to each other it's a, it's a similar thing that i think that we do sometimes miss in um in our uh, perhaps majority like ma- mostly um uh, western society um uh i, w- I was just going to come back to chase it. it was apec was the meeting oh that APEC, they went yeah, after. that's right it was yeah. too yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is i remember watching that it was pretty funny um it's probably still on youtube if people want to look it up absolutely yeah. we'll link it in the show notes yeah okay don't great. worry <laughs> that'd be, <laughs> be fun to watch that again <laughs> yeah um, should we move on to the next one, yes. um, please? Rural Ian. orientation. Mm. Rural orientation. So 
is obedience in a, in a culture directed by relationships or by external rules. So in some cultures, my idea of what is right and wrong is shaped very much by the relationships in which I'm embedded. Uh, in other cultures, it's external sets of rules. Um, in that first set, that relational thing, it's much more flexible. Breaking the rules is not so important. The relationships are really important. In that second set, uh, it's um, more the rules themselves are important and, and they sort of stand alone and have their own separate authority. So for those first three areas, Australia was quite strongly. So Australia is quite strongly master of environment, quite strongly uh, individualistic, quite strongly egalitarian. This one, we're closer to the middle on the spectrum, but we still land on the more rules-based side. And I, I puzzled with this one. This is probably the one I, I, I struggle with the most in terms of thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this, but the, 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 the ones that nail it for me have been traffic lights at night. So if yes. you go through a set of traffic lights at midnight, there's nobody on the road, you'll still see people sitting at the red lights. Uh, and that's rule orientation. The other one is uh, vaccine compliance. Mm. Uh, Australia is leading the way pretty well in terms of vaccine compliance. So the government has said, or the health authorities have said, you need to get vaccinated. And over 90% of Australians will do that. The US, it's less than 70%, I think. And in some parts of the world, one of the Eastern European countries, it's 40%. Even Austria is is sort of 60%. And, and that is reflecting an, a, a, a rule, a, an openness to rule-based um, control that exists in, in Australia. So I'm more convinced of that post-COVID than I was mm. pre-COVID. I was thinking about the, the masks as well as I go around and people like to... Yeah, you know, have a bit of a whinge about wearing the mask, but you go out and everyone is just doing the right thing. They're all just wearing masks. And really early on in the in the first uh, lockdown and masks that we had, we had the yeah you know, the big story about the lady in Bunnings in Melbourne, and you know it made the national news because he was a lady who was saying, "I'm not going to wear a mask," and everyone else is is mocking and ridiculing her and just saying, "Oh, come on, just get on with it, just wear a mask." and um, I saw a, another thing yesterday. There was a guy that um, was caught on security camera um, pushing a Dimmick security guard over on the escalators um, because he'd been refused entry to a store because he wasn't wearing a mask and wouldn't show his vaccine certificate. But again, the fact that I, you know, in Sydney saw this on the, you know, the national news was because it's, it's such big news that someone wouldn't wear a mask. Why wouldn't you just get on with it? And I've noticed those, those same things. It's really interesting how compliant we are that have a bit of a whinge and then just do it. Everyone just did it. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. And what would you put that compliant behaviour down to in terms of uh, an entire culture? Where, did, where do you think that comes from? I mean, it's funny that we were uh, an, a, a very influenced by convicts. They weren't really, they weren't really <laughs> being very compliant at the time. So it'd be interesting to where do you think that comes from. I don't know. I'm only speculating on this, but my, my suggestion is it's actually coming back from being laid back. It's, it's not a, it's an apathy. That's like, oh, yeah, we'll go yeah. along with it. The government says that we'll, we'll, we'll go along with it. And uh, you see some people interviewed at the vaccine clinics, yeah, why did you get vaccinated? Oh, well, yeah, I thought it was about time to do the right thing. It's not a, uh, I think in America they would be much more strongly, they'd have much more passionate statements about it. It's more a, we'll just go along with the flow sort of thing. So 
I've got no evidence for that, but that's just my gut feeling. It's it's more related to apathy than conviction. Yeah, I think that's right, right, Ian. I think it's a really helpful observation. Another thing that I thought of too was I was talking to an American pastor who's a friend of mine, and he he often says, "I I keep forgetting that you're you're not like us." And it was quite quite an interesting statement because I watch so much American movies and TV and music that I kind of don't think there is any difference between Australia and America. But he says, "What what I keep." being confronted by when I meet you Australians is you're more British than you are American. And I, I, again, took a second take, didn't even think of that because I suppose, yeah, we do absorb a lot of British culture and obviously we've had a lot of heritage from the British up until the Second World War and I think then we pivoted to the Americans after the Second World War a bit more culturally. But that that heritage of that British, he called it British socialism and I, I think that was a bit going too far. Uh, but that, that sense that the, the Britishness in us maybe is we'll all do this together and we'll get through this together whereas Americans have got more of a pioneering spirit and they celebrate the power of the individual to overcome a circumstance and actually change whole swathes of history from one event you know the Alamo versus you know the 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 uh, the blitz where everyone in England was just you know getting on and trying to keep the systems going in second world war so yeah that what we celebrate is really interesting because in Australia I think we're in between those two cultures but what's really interesting is that as we have more multicultural uh, people uh, come from different countries will change again I think and we'll have more uh, I think you mentioned um, the Asian influence I think the Chinese uh, culture is more honoring as you said and it's going to probably not completely change it but just modify certain parts of it it's going to be fascinating to watch how that plays out over time I think Mm. Shall we move on to the, the, the last one? Uh, and then we can obviously dive into many different details. Uh, it's time orientation, is that right? That's right, yep, yep. So t- some societies are monochronic, which means they tend to focus on one thing and then do the next thing. So it's a linear approach to time. Uh, other societies are, or other cultures are polychronic. They tend to do multiple things at the same time. And Australia tends to be more monochronic. They're, we tend to like to do things in order, uh, and we wear watches. Uh, it's you know, hard to believe that in some societies of the world they don't wear watches. Hmm. It's just it's morning, it's afternoon, it's evening. Uh, when are we meeting? Well, I meet in the morning. You, you'll often hear people, Westerners, Australians who travel overseas, they come back with complaints of the fact that everybody was always running late and time was This is just classic uh, ethnic, cultural uh, legacy that, that we take with us that uh, we're... we're Time push. This is a big one for business because a lot of there's a lot of tension where the American or the Australian goes to uh, to work in Africa uh, and and end up killing somebody or resigning in in anguish because they can't get things to run on time uh, it's because they're monochronic and the African culture is polychronic and they just can't get their head around it. Uh, so um, yeah, that, that's. Um, um, from from the COVID perspective, the interesting thing is so the, the monochronic tend to be very feel time poor and feel rushed all the time, whereas the polychronic are far more relaxed and, and laid back. One of the things that happens during the COVID is that the green change. So people sort of saying, I'm going to get out of the, the hustle and bustle of the city and, oh, yeah. and move to the central coast or or move to, to Bathurst or whatever and, uh, and, and take, a lower, take a slower lifestyle and that's a, a sort of a pushback against the extremes of the monochromatic mono, uh, uh, culture or chronolo- monochronological culture. And perhaps we're seeing Australia wanting to slow down a little bit. 
I feel like I'm very monochromatic. What is it? Monochromatic. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> definite on time. Um, it's interesting when you say that. I, I I used to work for the Australian Paralympic Committee, and so when they were getting ready for um, Rio in 2016, two of those things came up in terms of uh, time when they were trying to organise things with the organising committee. Everyone else was like, people in Brazil was like, oh yeah, it'll just happen when it happens. But the other thing was the the rule. <laughs> The rule orientation as well, that it was like, oh, we get things done by you know, a bit of cash under the table and stuff like that. So it was a very big culture shock for the people that I worked with because they're like, oh, we don't know how to operate in this scenario. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, Stu, the time thing as well is something that we've learned a lot from our Indigenous brothers and sisters about how to slow down. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I've got a funny story about that. When um, we, we've, We've had in invitations from guest speakers to come to churches in the Solomon Shire over many years and sometimes a speaker will come and speak at a church and Isaac and I were talking about it when we first launched our church, Soul Revival Church, 10 years ago that when Isaac came to preach, I said, Isaac, um, when we go to Brewarrina, you do church really differently. So instead of just coming to speak and having 20 minutes to do a sermon and then maybe an interview, why don't we just uh, have you run the whole service and be the worship leader for the whole service as well as the preacher? And um, it was really interesting to see how people loved it. It was uh, it, the service went for two hours instead of one hour. Like at, at our church, we go for one hour service. We do have meals either side of our service and coffee either side, so people are used to hanging out and spending a bit more time. But it was interesting watching people to start off with when it was hitting that hour. They were squirming. Hang on, it's time to finish now, and it's time to move <laughs> on to the next thing. But then over time, watching them just start to relax, going, actually, this is really nice. Like. Isaac was asking people to come up and speak and share testimonies and does anybody have a song for us and you could see people feeling really awkward to start off with but then over time starting to go oh I like this it's nice so one thing I I think too is when people experience a different way of dealing with time then it's it's really quite easy to adjust so and and I think we are adjusting as a nation so I kind of like that I think it's nice that we're slowing down a bit I think it's funny also when you're in church to when you run a meeting because I like to run a meeting so that we, in between individualistic and collectivist, that we're, we're, we're able to be a bit um, time orientated and get, get the job done, but also be thinking of the group and, and building the relationships in the group at the same time. And some people, particularly from business, go, I'm not used to that. I just want to get the job done. So That's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're wasting time. We don't need to have a meal. We don't need to talk. Why are we joking around about stuff? And I mean, yeah, sure, you can sometimes go too far in the jokey stuff. But we're so used to really valuing the importance of spending an hour talking about what colour the carpet is in the church, you know. <laughs> we, that's really valuable. And, and I'm like, well, is it? I don't know. Maybe we could spend less time talking about the carpet and more time talking about each other. How are we going? Are we, mm. how you, how's your faith going? Because you can even have a parish council meeting in our context and you could go months without checking in on each other if you're not careful so yeah i think i think it's good for us as australians to be a bit more flexible and to learn and and again with that shock absorber theory it's like i think our young people are becoming more flexible before older people because i like it that uh, there's members of our congregation that are mixing more with different nationalities at uni when they go to uni and they might have their best friends might be all from shanghai rather than from from the southern shire so they're actually abiding this whole new experience and they're coming back into the context of their family and their local church with these new experiences and I, I remember myself when I went to Sydney University and I became really good friends with uh, a Greek couple and one one really interesting example was that when we came to pay for lunch 
the first day we had lunch together, I went to go and get the bill and work, and I worked out that I owed seven dollars twenty-five, and they owed seven dollars twenty-five, and so I was getting my seven dollars twenty-five out. But before I could get my seven dollars twenty-five out, Dimitri had already paid for the whole thing, and I'm like, "Oh, don't do that!" No, and it was like, "You broke the rule. You you can't pay for the whole thing because we all have to share." He's like, he looked at me as if I was from another planet, and I was like, "And and then I started thinking, yeah, why why can't we be more generous? What that's a good idea." And so I found that's actually changed how I think about that. So I like that. I think it's nice that maybe our young people might help us to become a little less like that, yeah. Tim, uh, do you, do you like to keep good time? Uh, I am monochronic, probably to my own ill health. Um, <laughs> so I would love to be more polychronic. I think I resonate with you, Joel. Um, Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I, it was just an interesting question to ask yeah, you. Yeah, no. I, I had... Um, uh, from my work um, at YouthWorks, we do a lot of personality tests uh, as the, the, so those team ones so you know how to work with each other and mm. those kind of things and the, the personality profile type stuff. And one of the ones I did a few years ago, uh, one of the, the things that stood out to me was um, sometimes Tim just wishes the world would slow down. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's exactly me. Yeah, I really do. But part of that is, I think, because I'm so monochronic and I just, I don't, I'm not quite sure how ever to escape from mm-hmm. that, that I'd, it then causes a stress point for me. So it's a good thing to, to know about myself that I need to find those, oh, those that's times. In, yeah. That's interesting. I was wondering, Ian, um, you, all throughout this introductory essay um, of, of the book that you have, uh, you very teasingly ask a whole lot of questions and don't answer them, which is lovely. Um, <laughs> but you've got in this section about time, you asked the question, is Australia's obsession with time and task consistent with the values of God's kingdom? Um, so I was wondering about your opinion. Is, is God's kingdom mon- monochronic? Is it polychronic? How would you, you know, pass that from a kingdom perspective? As, as someone who is very task-oriented, I am frightened that the kingdom of God is very people-oriented. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we see enough evidence in the Gospels of Jesus stopping in the middle of something really what seems to me very really important to focus on an individual mm. and find that I find that a, a difficult thing to do. So it's, yeah, I'm, I think it's one of those both ends again. Uh, we're in the middle. I think Australians, we tend to be a bit too obsessed with punctuality and time. And uh, but the kingdom of God is a, a slow thing and it requires us to, to sit with it and, and to ponder and to to move slowly and to focus on, on people. Uh, th- this really struck home to me once was we had a, uh, an Aborigin- a young Indigenous guy start coming to our church. He was just a kid, really. And he, he got on the drum kit one day and was after church and was bashing away at it. And I, being the senior pastor, went up to him and said, stop bashing the drums because you're distracting. People can't hear. But a friend of mine who's far more people-oriented come up and started giving the kids lessons. And I was just struck by thinking, which one of those, me or him, which one had the greatest impact on that kid, you know, for good. And and I was left convicted that absolutely just putting people first rather than things, uh, I was quite convicted that uh, that's that's got to be our major focus. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm mono, uh, but, I, I, but I wish I, I could be more, I'm, I think I'm getting better, but but I, 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 I still realise I do need to spend more time with people and, be more people-focused than task-focused. Well, we kind of run through all the, the, the big five classifications or um, structures that you've came up with. I was just wondering, 
in the most of all, uh, how, how as Christians do you think we should respond in understanding Australia? I mean, that's something we've talked about in a number of um, uh, podcasts before is like, how do, should we perhaps embrace or critique Australian culture in your opinion, Ian? Yeah, so I think every culture, no culture is whole, is God's culture or, or a godly culture. So I think for a while, particularly the Americans thought that they had, they were the kingdom of God on earth. So that their, their values were God's values and that they were legitimately a Christian society. And Australia had that to some extent as well, that we were a Christian, and you still hear that language, we were a Christian society. But I think this research and the fact that people travel now and experience other cultures more intimately means that we have to critique every culture. There is no Christian culture and every culture has certain strengths. Like I think the collectivist uh, dimension of strength of some cultures is a helpful corrective for Australian individualism. And so all cultures need to be evaluated and all cultures need to have areas where they can work and become more aligned with God's values uh, as they as they come to understand those and as they interact with other cultures. How do you, uh, in your particular context, when you're talking about um, helping people preach, how do you help people understand what you're talking about there and, and where do you kind of point them towards before they, to help them perhaps come up with um, more applicable applications? Yeah, uh, one of the... Terms, I think I use it in the introduction. I don't know if you got to it, is this idea of cultural exegesis. So we exegete the text, which is fantastic. And, and most of us are really good at, if you've done three years of Bible college, you're, you're pretty good at exegeting the text. But if we're going to be that bridge builder and contextualizer, we also need to exegete our congregation. And I, I hope I'm able to get across in the book that Australia is not a monocultural. Uh, culture, uh, society. I think in in 1939 we probably were uh, that that well, largely that that we were a, a monocultural. Most people valued the same things, thought the same things, but we are now in a in a society that is quite fragmented, and we need to. And every congreg that means every congregation is different. There are some congregations which are still mono Anglo, uh, Gen uh, Gen. Uh, a baby boomer, monocultural Anglo baby boomer congregations, and they're, they're in a sense they're easy. Uh, but then there are congregations, and I'm, I'm guessing uh, your church is a bit like that, which is culturally diverse and uh, generationally diverse, and probably even within that, there are other subcultures that exist, and that what we need to do as preachers is to as best we can, understand the cultures, the subcultures that exist within our congregation. And when we're preaching, and particularly when we're thinking about application, we're thinking, okay, how does this text apply to the, the, the baby boomers, uh, you know, in their, in, in their, in their situation? And, and then, you know, how does this apply to the alpha gen, uh, alpha gen alpha at, at the other end of the spectrum? How does this apply to those who come from a, an Asian background? How does those, this apply to those who come from a Middle Eastern background, if, if you've got those in your congregation? Uh, just to be able to bring that greater nuance to the to the application uh, rather than saying we all need to pray more. Okay, well, well that's going to look different. The praying more is going to look different in different, different contexts. For some of them, it's going to be praying more on the train on the way to work. For others, it's going to be 
praying more while you're walking the dog. Uh, for some, it'll be uh, yeah, praying more in your class or praying for your schoolmates uh, in, in your classroom setting. So that's the sort of way that cultural exegesis in order to be able to break up the, the different elements of a congregation and, and target application to those different groups. I think uh, the, the term cultural exegesis is probably beyond my understanding to a large degree, but I don't think it would be for you, Stu. What, what would you like to say about that? Yeah, I, I think I think what we're doing in this podcast is cultural exegesis for the yeah. same purposes. Yeah, it's a big fancy word for looking at Taylor Swift and having a listen to some of her lyrics and then asking the question, how much has her culture created that expression and how much is she actually uh, influencing culture with that expression? It's a it's a, a two-part two thing. We're also looking at how has history led to that moment and how has history changed after that moment? And we're looking at how does, you know, are the bigger forces like globalism influencing these things? Or And what's really clever about these uh, five categories is they're giving us some framework for that cultural exegesis so that it gives us a tool to be able to look at something that's different to something else but use the same categories to try and to work out how are those two things differently. So... Uh, one of the the interesting outcomes of that cultural exegesis is to say, well, well, for example, like when we first started our youth group back in the early nineties, uh, we were a very Anglo-Australian youth group, and and we were noticing that the broader culture was changing, but the church was still reflecting a culture of twenty years ago, and we're asking the question, not that you know, how do we change to copy that culture, but we're all saying, well, what's happening, and how do we speak into that culture? Uh, so one of the really tactile examples of how that sort of thinking that cultural exegesis helped me back in the day was when I was going to my high school which I then ended up going back as a scripture teacher to when I was at high school at Kirrawee High School I remember the scripture teachers were given a pretty hard time and I was a little bit nervous going into the school thinking I'm probably going to get a hard time in this school because the students are not real stoked on scripture teachers but then as i was walking into the school i was thinking well when kirk Cobain gets up on stage and he sings he just bees who he is he doesn't try and copy someone else and he just does that and so i, I went into the classroom thinking that and i thought well kirk Cobain was pretty confident in his musical style of grunge music which was just coming out with Nevermind. and i thought you know i've got the word of god in my hand like this is something I think is a really powerful message, just like he thinks his music is a really powerful message. So it just gave me a bit of confidence. So that cultural exegesis actually gave me confidence. But then when I spoke into the context, just as I was, as a person, as I was, I said to the guys like you, that were in the class, I said, you might you might have seen Kirk Cobain get up and you've all been surprised by that because that's really different to what you've seen in the last you know few years because these teenagers were on the literally on the edge of the beginning of grunge music when Nevermind had just come out. And I said, that album is different to what we've been listening to. You know, it's nothing like Guns N' Roses and, and all this, you know, hair metal that a lot of, even Metallica was different to, to uh, grunge. And I said, you were surprised by that, but you've listened to it and you've embraced it. And I said, you might be surprised by this message I'm about to share with you about Jesus, but before you write it off, it's, it's just different to what you, you were expecting. And so maybe keep an open mind for a bit while I explain it to you. And that seemed to resonate really well with that particular group of teenagers in that year group. And that was the beginning of seeing lots of young people actually decide they'd become a Christian. But I suppose, I don't know what you think about that little story or example, Ian, but for me that's sort of how cultural exegesis can help with the, the communicating of... Because you're just recognising the people you're speaking to and you're helping 
them to go from the known to the unknown. I think that's part of it for me. So rather than expecting them to jump straight into the unknown, there's like, you know, I, I, I kind of know where we're all at here as Australians and this is how we kind of tend to think. And God thinks really differently to us. Let's have a look at that. Or actually, God thinks really in a similar way to us in this regard. Let's, let's have a look at that. I, I don't know, Ian, if you think it's as basic as that. But for me, that sometimes is how it works yeah. itself out. I think that's uh, music is the perfect example of, or studying music and using mu music is the, the perfect example of cultural uh, exegesis. Because that's exactly what Paul did in Acts 17 as well. So when he goes to the Arapagus, He's talking to them and he says, he comments on, he, he identifies the gods they're worshipping and he also quotes one of their poets uh, and then says, so you've got this understanding, but let me tell you what I can add to that understanding. And that's basically what we're doing with, with cultural exegesis, listening to the music, trying to understand the lyrics and then trying to bring the Christian message into conversation with those, with that particular perspective. And so the the guys who write about cultural exegesis talk a lot about the importance of movies as well because they are the narrative of society and, and probably these days increasingly the um, the TV series, uh, the Netflix, you know, on Netflix and things like that. All the streaming, yeah. Not only retell people's narrative but also feed into people's narrative and, and shape people's narrative as they, they buy and engage with those with those stories. So um, I think what you're doing is great and I'm... Not just buying smoke there. It's it's great <laughs> because it really is very active at cultural exegesis, and I think the people you're seeking to serve will benefit greatly from being able to to sort of take this step back from their culture that they're immersed in, and critique it a little bit, and say, okay, Taylor Swift, when she sings that song, she's actually shaping my worldview a little bit. I need to recognise she's doing that and and buy parts of it, but also critique the bits of it that aren't there, and and that. Dare I say also that God is God is in there somewhere in in Taylor Swift's song. She he, God is at work. He gifted her for that music and enabled her to be able to do that. And he's he's working through there. Some of it I don't agree with, but some of it can be taken. Some can be redeemed. I don't know if you guys have talked about that. Uh, approaches to culture of mm. rejecting it, redeeming it, mm. accepting it. Uh, uh, that's a great skill, I think. In society we find ourselves in there. yeah we haven't quite got there yet but that's where we're hoping to go in future podcasts that's a really good introduction to that idea of redeeming things in culture because even that egalitarianism i think we can redeem that sense of mateship that i'd be willing to put myself out there for yeah. someone else who's in need like i, I don't want to see those people going through the bushfire without any food huge numbers of people from sydney gave money people tried to get down there to give food i mean i actually got caught in the bushfires that you were talking about i was down on holidays down at ulladulla and just seeing how people were looking after each other was phenomenal and you know there were people even saying there was a lady that was in a wheelchair at one point and there was this long two-hour line just to get into woolworths to get some bread and all these people saying hey get out of the way let this lady go through and i wow. mean th there's not always that reaction is there i mean if we've got scarce resources sometimes we get fearful and then and it's not redeemable if we're all fighting and squabbling over those resources but to be able to tell that story in a sermon and say oh that impulse is actually a really good impulse that that's mm. that's something that we can we can actually explore together as a church now like how can we be more thoughtful for those of us around us who are in need if we have plenty can we share more i mean last week's podcast we looked at 
the fact that wealthy Australians are giving less and less. And we looked at how you said in the article that during the Depression, people were giving a higher percentage of their income to how they are giving now. And that's yeah. something that's worth critiquing in us that where, where, did, we, where did we get to that? How, what, how can we... How can we start thinking about that again? And that's where scripture can shape our thinking, like to talk about the fact that the Macedonians gave out of their poverty for the sake of Jerusalem. And Paul was so excited about that. He, he wrote that down and passed that on. And God, God through his Holy Spirit, has, has made sure that message has come to our generation. I think almost every generation is reminded of that because I think we can sometimes think, oh, if I've got a bit extra, I'll, I'll give a bit more. But um, I, I remember one day I was at an Anzac Day March and I'm a bit older and I was there in the 1970s at an Antarctic Day March and there was this older guy there from the Second World War and, and I just got talking with him and it might have been early 80s actually because so I was a teenager and I was talking to this, this veteran and I said to him, it was a bit of a bold question I suppose but my grandparents were both from that generation too so I was used to talking to older people about their experiences but I said to this veteran, I said, um, what does the Anzac Day mean to you? And he said, you know, my best mates are here. I come each year to Anzac Day because these are my best friends. Despite the fact that I've spent most of my life not seeing them, we come together once a year and they're, they're really my... And I said, why are they best mates? And he said, well, he said, I, I, I got wounded and someone came out of a hole and crawled under fire to get me and drag me back into the hole. And I didn't even know who the guy was. It was just that I was an Australian that he went and he got me and he brought me back in the hole. And then when he dragged me back into the hole because I couldn't get back there myself, we both sat there laughing at each other and said, you silly silly bastard, what did you do that for? Why did you come out and risk your life just for me? And he's laughing going, I don't know, man. Like, He probably said, mate, I I don't know, mate. Like, You're definitely not worth it. So it's really funny. There's like this moment of incredible heroism that we give medals for that kind of stuff, but they're both laughing about it, calling each other bastards and saying, you know, you shouldn't have done that. And then there's this self-deprecation that comes in there as well. And I I tend to like hearing those stories from our culture that we can can sort of – because I think people warm to that and they think, yeah, we can rise above – selfish individualistic materialism and we can actually because we're, we're australians and australians look after their mates so mm. even though we'd also need to say that is a bit of a myth isn't it like you know we, we're not trying to go all the way you were talking about ian about where you said about the americans and australians who said oh we have a christian culture it's 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 not that we're going to head towards saying real australian culture is christian culture but if we can redeem that redeeming something is seeing an example in culture and saying that that's actually a good impulse that's that's redeemable it might not come directly from scripture for those two guys but that that's actually really interesting isn't it because jesus not only risked his life for us he sacrificed his life for us so telling those stories of i mean there are christians that say you know it's not helpful to tell stories of anzac day as illustrations for australians because there's a whole it was almost an idolatry of um, Anzac Day and nationalism and rightly people are worried about glorifying war and stuff like that but I think telling stories of sacrifice is is actually a really tangible helpful way for people to go from the known to the unknown I think. Uh, Ian I was just wondering uh, you, you've spoken a number of times in describing Australians and also even on this podcast today about you haven't traveled much but you found that people traveling was something really important as a almost like uh, Australians bumping up against against culture. I was just wondering why you thought that was really important to be able to uh, describe Australian culture. It's the is it the goldfish analogy. It's like when, when you're in the a goldfish has got no concept that water is water. It's just the 
environment in which they live. And culture is like that. It, it, when we are in culture, it's it's just the way things are. It's only when you go into another culture that you begin to appreciate that people do things differently and have different values. And uh, so the, 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 there's just anecdotal experience, but that people who have travelled a lot are able to come back and critique their native culture far more. Well, that's been my experience. When I've gone overseas, I've seen the cultural difference and I've gone, why? Why are they doing that that way? Um, they should do it this way. And then be able to go, well, hang on, actually, it's just two different ways of doing things. But the way I've grown up with it and the way that they've done it are uh, two equal ways of doing the same thing and helping to appreciate what the culture actually, what the Australian culture actually is. And I think if we do have the privilege of travelling more, it, it puts us in the position of being better able to critique the culture out of which we, we've come. So as Australians, we have to travel to actually get any kind of experience of that, right? So, so far away, we is that what you're I mean, yeah. we can. I mean, we've shared a lot today about the impact of the Indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. So, so just the experiences that we've had uh, in Indigenous culture has helped us to go, well, why do we do it that way? It's really good. Uh, and, and to reflect critically on culture. So maybe we don't need to travel because I think, like in Sydney, you could go to Lakemba uh, and, and yeah. have a cross-cultural experience. Mm. So uh, I think, and, and that will help. And you can also ask people. We, we've had the great privilege of having a, an American on on faculty at Malian for the last seven years. And he's so many times been able to go, let me tell you something about this from my perspective. And so as an outsider coming in to be able to, to see the way we think do things in Australia. And I mean, we, we push back and we don't get their gun culture. Like, like the guy, or, or their attitude to healthcare, yeah. But in in their culture, that's just the way we do things. Yeah. Well, of course, mm. we all carry guns, and of course, it's your responsibility to look after your own healthcare. Um, it's only that cross cultural work that enables us to critique it and perhaps say, well, maybe you shouldn't give semi automatics to everybody. And uh, yeah, and, and I'm sure the Americans have got things that they could speak into our culture. Interestingly, one of the things he said was that we are largely blind to our racism. He says that like Australians are, are very prone to critique American racial issues. He says, but but I, I look in and see the way that uh, Indigenous people are treated and see the sim- similar issues. So mm. he, he was able to, because of his cross-cultural experience, bring that critique to us. That's really helpful. Well, there was something that was really highlighted by our episode with Michael Duckett a few episodes ago. So that was, um, yeah, that's a, I think that's a really great point. There is so much to learn just here. Um, and even my, so, my my father lives in. Um, he's been living in the US the last three years, and even he's still struggling sometimes with some of the things that happens just in the US. And it's uh, back to that analogy that your friend was saying that oh, I don't realise how different how even US and Australian cultures are. Mm. It does make me realise though also why Qantas ads work so well. Yeah, why Be- is that? Well, just because it's like I, I remember I went over to the US for three weeks, and you see a Qantas ad, and it's like oh, it's all about coming home. <laughs> and, then like, and then you say you wait and then like you're waiting for the plane to come home at the end of your trip you're like oh yeah there's a reason I'm actually really looking forward to getting back to Australia yeah. just yeah Do you know so the funny just thing? want to hear that Aussie accent yeah that's right <laughs> but you, know, you know a funny thing about that like I want to get home to what Australia is today not what overseas people think about it like mm. I travelled over to England to visit my relatives uh, a little while ago and, and I was really missing having some Asian food because there was just no Asian food in the part of England where I was and I just I just wanted to have some dumplings I just was like really keen for some dumplings and when we got to the Heathrow airport they had a dumpling shop in the airport and I walked in and the uh, person behind 
the counter and I said, oh, thank goodness there's dumplings. It's like, it's a bit of a taste of home. And the person did a double take and went, you're an Australian, a little taste of home. That's Asian. I said, yeah, Australia is Asian and, and Anglo and, and, and very multicultural now. And this is, I'll eat dumplings like at least once a, a week. Like it's part of, you know, we eat Asian food all the time. And the person was surprised by that. So I think, yeah, that's, that's where culture is so interesting. Um, Ian, I've got, I've got a quick question. We've been talking a little bit about the homogeneous unit principle over over the the life of this podcast, and you know that impulse from the nineteen seventies that McGavin had, which was that the answer to pluralistic culture and cultural differences is to create like groups that can reach those like groups. And while we haven't been trying to decry that and say that it's necessarily wrong, we have been looking at some of the uh, the shadows of that and some of the impacts that's had and we've been wondering taking some of your uh, categories here we've been wondering if maybe unintentionally by having homogeneous unit principal groups we've actually been not having the opportunity to have some of that conversation that we could have really easily as christians of different ages particularly but also different cultures and we've been wondering if maybe individualism and consumerism and transience may be three amongst many consequences of having church is set up like that so if church is an event and there's that whole you know church growth methodology of attractional church uh, we're going to put on a ministry for you that is for you could that maybe uh, limit some of our development in challenging some of our culture because we might just be having church expressions for our particular culture Uh, we've wondered if that means that there's a bit too much embrace of culture sometimes within that context and so as a church we've been experimenting with intergenerational ministry because we've wanted to see a bit more of a conversation that christians can have with each other within the local church as well as traveling to other parts of sydney or going to other churches we're trying to we, we talk a little bit about sharing the truth and love of jesus person to person generation to generation culture to culture and place to place to try and capture a sense that we're part of the kingdom of god and our local church expression is part of that, but it's good for us to keep reflecting on our culture that we don't just become too narrow thinking. That's a really big question, but just to mm. get your thoughts, have you got any? Have you had any thoughts on the homogeneous unit principle at all? I've, I've just uh, had an article published called um, "The Case for the Monocultural Church." Okay, which, yeah, right. Um, wrestles with this whole issue of the, the homogeneous unit principle and its outplay in church life. Um, McGavran unfortunately he's copped a lot of criticism for the homogeneous unit principle which says basically that people like to come to faith without crossing cultural barriers so people like to come to faith without crossing cultural barriers and so in a in a missionary context it means we need to contextualize the gospel so we want to make it as easy for people to become christians meaning they don't have to change their culture in order to become believers and it's it's that principle i think is in the fabric of creation i think that's uh that's a universally true principle generally we don't like cross cross-cultural work is hard work learning language is hard work learning how not to offend people in a different culture is hard work learning how not to be offended when you a person from a different culture offends you is hard work so it's, it's much easier just to stay within your own culture so it's it's universally true and it, it's a really important missional principle. So that's why cross-cultural ministry, you go in there, you learn the language, you learn, to, you learn, you do cultural exegesis to understand the culture you're ministering into, and it works really well. What happened, though, was that some clever people at Fuller Seminary said, 
uh, this HUP, this homogeneous unit principle, it probably works for domestic churches as well. And lo and behold, it does. If you set up your church in such a way that it targets one particular culture and makes it very comfortable for people within that culture, lo and behold, people come and they feel very comfortable and everything seems to be good, like churches grow uh, when you observe that homogeneous unit principle. The problem is that it's too comfortable and the churches become impoverished because of their monocultural nature. When, when you're all white Anglo-Saxon Protestants with no ethnic little generational diversity, it's all very comfortable, but you don't tend to have that discipleship creation area. You don't have to exercise patience. You don't have to exercise tolerance. You don't have to listen to other people. You don't have to be humble in your beliefs. Uh, those things only happen when you start to minister or start to live cross-culturally. And so it's easy to be monocultural. It's harder to be a multicultural church where different age and ethnicity is embraced and celebrated and worked at consciously. But the fruit of that is good discipleship and, and good spiritual growth. Uh, sometimes you won't grow numerically because it's not as, as a comfortable a place as, as a monoethnic church, but uh, you, you will grow spiritually and, and in terms of Christ-likeness when you are in those cross-cultural, diverse communities. And that's why the church is meant to be a, a diverse community where the, the hand, there's hands and feet and, and they, they don't exclude one another, but they work hard to understand one another and work together. So that's a, a long answer, which I think was a, it was a pretty complicated question. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was accurately balanced. Yeah, yeah. That was, that's really helpful because it's interesting, isn't it? Just holding things in tension, isn't it? So there is a missional endeavour that can be celebrated, that it's it's good and helpful, but then also what are the dangers of that as well? So um, I, I had a lecturer at SMBC College when I was in the 90s, when I was younger, a man named Bruce Smith, and uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but I just want to shout out to Bruce Smith that he was the first one to get me starting to think like that, that he used to use this phrase that he said, uh, imagine a tree, and that's a good thing, but the thing about a tree is even a tree will cast a shadow, and he'd say, every good thing has shadows and creatures live in the shadows, and, and that was a really helpful thing for me as a young yeah. uh, Christian to start thinking like, yeah, I might see a problem with something else or a shadow or a creature of another approach, but I might think that what I'm going to do is going to fix that and it's going to be perfect. Um, in late, later life, I've come across Richard Osmer's pastoral cycle, which also I think embraces this idea that you ask the question, what's going on? Why is it happening? What does the Bible have to say? And what is our response? But then as soon as you have a response, there'll be more problems that will mm. come about and you can start again and you can say, oh, okay, what's happening now? And it's, almost, it's a nice sort of uh, flow, I think, to... And it's also a really humble stance to stand before God and know that he is God and we are not and that what we come up with as human beings is exciting and it's fun to think of ideas and to read the Bible and to try and apply it to our context and you know look at culture. But just have that humility that Paul talks about in Philippians 2 that, you know, I mean, if Christ was so humble that he, he left his throne in heaven to come to be with us, like I think we've got to be careful we don't um, do a bit of what we were talking about last week with Kanye West and self-ingrandise ourselves and you know sometimes we have christian celebrities preachers and christian celebrities and we, we can fall into some of that thinking that 
oh, there's a problem. Oh, but we've got a solution to that. So I think I think what we're talking about. I don't know what you think about that, Ian, but I think what we're talking a bit about today is to even say, yeah, that the homogeneous unit principle can be really helpful if I've learnt the culture and I've learnt a language and I've gone in and I've presented that language to that group of people. But then if I set my local church up on that, then there could be some shadows that I'd... If I choose to go that way, there, there might be some thinking I need to do around that comfort thing, for example. How do I maybe inject some things in there to help people to have a deeper appreciation of costly discipleship rather than easy discipleship? So, yeah, that, that's... I think the tree's a good metaphor. Yeah. yeah. It's... It, but the, the homogeneous unit principle is really effective and really good cross-cultural, you know, as a cross-cultural missionary, but it does have, you've got to think it through a bit more carefully at a, at a local church level. Yeah, it's helpful. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, um, we did an episode way back on the theology of intergenerational ministry, which is something that we try and pursue here at Sorovold Church. Um, Tim, I'd love, you had, you had quite a few... Um, you talked about a mosaic of intergenerational ministry in the church, which I, I love that tiling analogy. Um, <laughs> um, do you want to just revisit a couple of those at, at that point in time? I mean, the one thing with the homogeneous unit principle is that we see that perhaps when people move to a different stage of life, there's actually quite a drop-off of people coming to church. Can you expand on that a bit more? Yeah, so biblical principles? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, as a so I'm... Uh, spend most of my time as a children's ministry advisor, so spending hanging out with churches and um, helping them do children's ministry well. And I work on a team where there's youth ministry advisors too, so that's most of my world. And we do lecturing in those. Um, and one of the very common problems that people are always asking is, well, how do we how do we stop the drop off? You know, there's always a drop off between year six and year seven, and between you know year ten and year eleven, and year twelve and above. And um, and there's lots of ways to sort of interact with those questions, but Part of the answer is that they're problems of our own making uh, to one extent because we have created really nice homogeneous um, siloed ministries where here's the kids ministry over here and then here's the youth ministry over here and then here's the young adult ministry over here and they don't talk to each other. Um, And so when you have a child who naturally graduates and grows through those different ministries, um, you're basically saying, okay, your expression of church has finished now, 12-year-old, and you now to move over here and start a new expression of church with new people that you don't really have relationship with. But trust me, these are your new leaders um, and you'll have a great time in youth. And then you, you, you know, go through life and you graduate high school and you go through all of these transitions. Um, and you also, for... Uh, for some, their only expression of what it meant to be a Christian and to join into the people of God was there, and they're now graduated out of that. They're not welcome at youth group anymore. Yeah, you're 19. You're you're not in school. Uh, this is not your space. Over here is your space now. Um, and so, by having really strict siloing of ministries, you actually create these problems of drop-offs. And so, one of the things that intergenerational ministry is seeking to address is those. It's saying if we actually had intergenerational ministries all throughout that, um, it's not eliminating those. You can still have age-appropriate expressions of gatherings and peer groups and youth ministries and kids' ministries, but if it's done within a framework which is intergenerational, uh, then yeah, you can minimise some of that impact and the, the disjunct that comes from having to move between groups. Um, when it comes to the biblical 
foundations, uh, you know, things about you know, thinking about how the Bible talks about the gathering of his people uh, in the Old and the New Testament. Um, we can see examples of how that happened and we can see that there are moments, particularly in the Old Testament, where all the people gathered together and the men and the women and the children were all there. So we can see those kind of things happening. Um, the metaphors that Paul uses about family and household, I think they're really important um, biblical metaphors to understanding who we are as the people of God um, and that, uh, Stu, you've got the great image of the Christmas meal. Like when you come together for the Christmas meal, there's, all the generations are there. Um, and you know, sometimes you have a kid's table and other times you mm. just kind of you're just all in together. But um, there's, you're, you're not you know, meeting in different houses or different locations or whatever. But you know, when a church is a family, um, which is a great book by Joseph Hellerman, When the Church Was a Family, um, but when the church is a family, when there's a household, and that's the imagery that you're using primarily to understand who you are as a local gathering of God's people, um, some of that biblical imagery and, and the theology that's formed around that is really helpful to understanding and, and just helps to critique some of those ideas, like Anne, you said, of using the homogeneous unit principle in a local domestic urban church context. Um, the intergenerational ministry can sort of create a corrective to that. I was going to ask, um, in what was the case or not the case for monocultural church? Without spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think there's a simplistic answer that says that when you look at the New Testament, churches are meant to be multi-ethnic, uh, multicultural. Uh, so there, there's um, you know, evidence that we're in to really embrace the cultural diversity for the reasons I talked about, discipleship and so on. But it's not quite as simple as that because there are cases of monocultural churches that have ministered really effectively in their context for a period of time and then they've closed. And that's just the way things work. Like the Antioch church is still not around. It was a great church, great multicultural church, but it closed centuries ago. Um, so churches have life cycles and that's inevitable. And certainly we, we should look to be multi-diverse, so multicultural, multi-generational, but let's not make it the hard, let's not mandate that and say that there might be circumstances where it's okay for a church to be mm. monocultural and, and not diverse for a particular reason and, and maybe for a particular season of its life. So we had some German churches in Queensland that were, that had incredible, they had, there's a photo of 200 people lining up to be baptised uh, on, on a Sunday morning at one of these German churches. They've either, the German church, they've either now closed or they became anglicised um, but for that season they, they were God's purpose and uh, the expression of God's kingdom that way yeah I think I really agree I think I think I'm a, a big fan of uh, indigenous churches because I think it's a really yeah. helpful thing for Aboriginal Perfect Christians example. to gather together in their culture um, as as uh, Michael Duckett was saying a couple of weeks ago that uh, sometimes the the Aboriginal churches are small and and they're, they're far spread apart but their interaction with their community is incredible and and I think that um, it's really important for Aboriginal Christians to I think continue to to have an Aboriginal Christian identity I think that's a really beautiful thing so I think one of the dangers of being and that the, you know the, like I think I like what you're saying in no, I, I like what you're saying in about the fact that it's not just a one-size-fits-all all the time that 
we don't want to just impose this strategy but uh, all that strategy but sometimes a book can come out from america or england and everyone reads it and everyone's like, oh now we need to do this and now we need to do that and i hear that impulse a little bit um, i think it's good to take ideas from america and england but uh, i've been sh- we've been sharing over the podcast for a while ian that you know we've actually learned a lot from our aboriginal churches that we're friends with so mm-hmm. for example we have a meal in our church that we probably wouldn't have had if we hadn't have experienced meals after church in Brewarrina where their service goes for two hours and then everyone goes back to someone's house and they have a big feed and have a yarn and sit around the fire and slow things down. And, you know, the, the, it's counterintuitive to the, the city mindset, which is people are mm. time poor, which you mentioned in your article. People are time poor, so let's run with that and let, let's give them a really short one-hour punchy service so that they can get on with the next thing they're doing. But, you know, maybe to be a bit more countercultural and challenge that and learn from our Aboriginal brothers and sisters in their churches and actually have a feed. And we've found that that's one of the really popular things in what we do in our church and uh, people really love that. And to not say you have to stay because I think a lot of people go, so are you saying that if I can't just come for an hour, I, you know, I have to stay? For, no. And we're saying, no, 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 if you want to stay for an hour, you just stay for an hour and then go home. But if you want to stay for dinner opt-in so that idea from Oldenburg about um, third place communities where there's regulars and irregulars where the regulars enjoy the meal together every week and some irregulars come along check it out a little bit and then go home if they don't but you know I think the Aboriginal culture taught us that really strongly so yeah I'd really resonate with that I think it was really good that was really cool thank you thank you guys Uh, I have another question about um, wealth and consumerism in which you, you pick up in describing Australians again and he says that, sorry, you say that we have here perhaps the most important and threatening features of Australian culture when referring to wealth and consumerism. I'm just wondering, um, what do you think about that? And, and how should we be thinking of that as Christians in Australia? Mm-hmm. The, the, the history of the church would suggest that wherever there has been great physical wealth, there has been spiritual poverty. And often when there is physical poverty, there's spiritual wealth and I think there's scriptural background for that as well, where Jesus talks about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And and, and a lot of Jesus' teaching is about wealth and how to manage wealth and what attitude to have to wealth. And and I would argue that it is faith, Christian faith struggles in the presence of wealth and physical uh, wealth and, and probably the, the, the outcome of having lots of disposable income is consumerism. Whereas if you're in a poor society, you're not really thinking about what type of car you're going to get or um, whether you've got the latest phone or not. It's, it's life's much simpler than that. You're not thinking about stuff. You're thinking about uh, important things in life. And, but I think wealth then means you think about, well, how am I going to spend my money or whatever? And that is poisonous for uh, the Christian faith. It, it becomes a substitute. Because shopping gives us some of the same emotions as worship does or um, even just sort of the feeling of well-being that you've got something new to wear or whatever, it undermines our hunger for God and and impoverishes us spiritually. And and I think I'd argue it's a very valid interpretation of the parable of the sower is to recognise that there are different types of soils and the the gospel's responsiveness depends upon the soil that lands in and that a, a culture which is very materially wealthy is the hard ground that the seed of the gospel struggles to, 
to grow in and and, and prosper in. So, um, the the I, so so I'd say yeah, I think I use that language of you know the wealth is, is dangerous for us and and consumerism is is a is probably the major issue we face in terms of discipleship in in our churches because of that both the, the experience of church history, but also that um, the parable of the sower. I think that I think that's what it's saying and um, and so the gospel work gospel ministry in Australia and 21st century Australia is hard it's hard work uh, and so when you have a conversion the celebration should be even richer uh, and and when you have people who are growing significantly in their faith don't take that as being don't take that for granted celebrate that and, and recognize that it is the exception in our culture at the moment yeah, whereas wow. in places in Asia and South America it's just the church is just going gangbuster mm. um, because the, the soil is different what do you guys reckon we talked about that about Kanye West, didn't we, like in the previous episode, that he's gone through this thing of like, I've pursued all these things and uh, uh, become the powerful man that I should be and I have lots of money. I am um, now basically assigns himself as a god to everyone else. And then we have this moment where he's saying, oh, I've actually been converted. I was, I was obeying too many gods, including myself, and then I have become a Christian. What... Um, how does that uh, how does that look in our can that happen in our uh, context in Australia? I'd like Tim, do you want to start and then we'll go to Stu? Yeah, well, we talked. Um, not sure if we got to it in the episode, but we had talked about it beforehand the idea that um, the increasing secularization of um, the Western cultures uh, and that actually Kanye's conversion, while there is some resonance with, we've had other, you know, big mega stars that have, you know, become Christians and, and the way that has changed their trajectory. And we talked about some of those in the episode, but that it actually is subversive in some way to the narrative, which is that, well, everyone is, of course, everyone's secular. Everyone who is in power is secular. Everyone who is influential is secular. Um, and to have someone um, of such significant cultural uh, power to convert to Christianity is radical um and it's always quite interesting watching how christians relate to that i don't know when his his album uh, jesus king came out and there's people who were just you know sort of championing oh hooray like now kanye's on our side you know isn't this fantastic and now everyone will become christians because we've got a superstar in our corner and and of course that didn't happen um uh it may have been influential in some people's spiritual journey but uh for most people it's just kind of an oddity and they just go oh that's interesting um so, but yeah, no, I definitely resonate with what um, you're saying in terms of the, the hardness of the soil in our, our culture. And yes, and therefore, it is, any conversion is just is absolutely fantastic because it can feel like it's so rare sometimes. Mm. Mm. Sure. Yeah, I disagree. I think it's really interesting when Jesus says that you can't serve two masters because you'll love one and hate the other. So yeah. I think it's it's a matter of it's an issue for me of like for mission and discipleship like how do we have these conversations in the church and you know, i think we said at the last podcast that what's that old saying that the last thing that's converted is your wallet or something of a christian <laughs> but it's it's a pretty confronting thing to to let go of that idol in australia and i, I remember we had a um a an african pastor visit us at Gaimer anglican church when when we were still at Gaimer anglican and he uh, confronted me over 
over the fact that I had three meals a day. And he said, do you really need three meals a day? Yeah, I only need two meals a day. And I just went, yeah, I need three meals a day. And, <laughs> and I felt, And I felt myself <laughs> arguing with him. And he, we're having this full, like, friendly argument. But I'm like, I need three meals a day. He goes, you don't need three meals a day. And I've never forgotten that. Like, I still have three meals a day. But I sort of, I wonder if there might, I come back to it so often in my mind that maybe it might be one day I just have two meals a day because I spend less money on food that way. And, well, um, yeah, you're good if you're only having three meals a day because we're about morning tea, afternoon tea, and supper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's second Part of breakfast. Elevens. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think yeah, probably put, most people through human history have lived on one meal a day. Right. So a subsistence yeah, right. worker goes to the marketplace without breakfast or perhaps a very light breakfast. If they work, they get a denarius, which is you know, in the biblical context, denarius, which was enough for one meal for them and their family. Wow. And they had that at the end of the day. So wow. That, that's go. that's a sign of our wealth. We, we don't really need three meals a day or three meals a day plus morning tea, afternoon tea and supper. But just the cultural milieu is, well, of course you do. Like my mum said, you know, if you don't have three square meals a day, you're going to die sort of thing. But that's right. It's yeah. probably not true. And the amount of coffee we have, like don't what tell is I it? I love that. I said that, but yeah, yeah. True. <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know how much coffee is where you live, but it's about four fifty for a coffee. Like, and I think of it sometimes. I just, I just paid four dollars fifty for some black water that's been warmed up. Like that's, that's pretty significant mm. wealth, isn't it? Really, mm. as a non-coffee drinker, I'm saying yes. <laughs> that's what happens. Uh, I'll, I'll, I think it's probably a good time to wrap up, but I just, I just have one question. I thought we might like to talk about, and as we've, and it's a concept of duality. So we have. Uh, the artists that we've talked about are often straddling two different things between their own personal um, experiences and what they think is going on in the culture. And they often uh, embody different things that they're actually speaking against, which is kind of odd. I also think, in, um, Ian, in your, um, your five different categories, there's those two different poles, opposite poles. It's like there's a duality between those two. Um, like Taylor Swift uh, decides that she's going to be herself but then doesn't like it when she gets criticised of being being herself so then she writes about that kind of thing. Um, and I, I was actually really taking, um, taking notice of that when uh, I was listening to Mark Sayers on his podcast and he was saying that he doesn't feel like he can tackle real social issues such as critical race theory because the cultural moment is just so strange and weird and odd that um, he even talked about a, a German so- sociologist called Ulrich Beck who brings up a, something, a concept of zombie categories where modernity has reached such a stage that categories of thought and institutions act like they're real, um, but they're actually hollow shells of themselves. So an instance of that is like a, there's a, a corporate clothing company who's a very Western... Western uh, it's it's uh, the people that buy their clothes are all from a Western society, but they use a, a very low-paying um, wage. They pay lo- very low wages to people in Bangladesh um, or perhaps India or, or those the subcontinent somewhere. But then they also will step out into political and social issues. So it's a very odd uh, odd moment, um, and and I I think it's a sign of something bigger going on. And I think it's a it's actually internet that is making a big difference in these kind of things. And we're also, like Mark says, makes the point of that we're trying to put ideologies that we've developed the last 200 years over something that we just don't know how to deal with. So in those five cultural dimensions that you kind of call out those dualities, I'm just wondering that if you've seen in your research that as a society, are we, are we also in Australia grappling with how to deal with this current, current cultural moment? Oh, I think so, isn't it? Yeah, I think that it's to do with the internet and just so much input and opinions, I think, in, in previous generations, uh, our families and our schools were, were what shaped us. 
uh, to a large extent, but now there's a million voices out there yelling at us through through the internet, and uh, it's it's very difficult for young people growing up. I think with just so much, and and so important, they've got a filter to be able to manage it and critique it, uh, because if you just accept everything, it it's just it'd just be overwhelming. Just just the other point about that duality thing, though, is that. Um, I think we've got a growing awareness now that human beings are basically irrational. I think modernity wanted us to be very rational and logical, but it's becoming more and more clear, I think, from the research, and I, I, hopefully people are appreciating that we're very, very complex beings and we operate often in contradictory ways. Uh, to me, the best example of this is cigarette smoking. So to go to a, a smoker and say, is cigarette smoking bad for you? Yes. Should you give up? Yes. Will you give up? No. <laughs> and yeah, and we we can look at that and say that's crazy stuff. But then, if we look at ourselves, we see we do the same things. We we're logically committed. We're cognitively committed to a whole range of things, but we don't do them uh, in the end, like quiet time, you know, or slowing down, or, or something like that. We say, yeah, we should slow down. Really committed to slowing down, but we don't do it. So we we are complicated, irrational beings. Who, who are being bombarded by all of these ideas that we need to buy into. And I think this is where we as the church need to be filled with grace uh, and recognise that as we critique society, we see plenty of sin there, but that's nothing that God hasn't already seen and, and, and nothing that God wasn't prepared to die to redeem and, and that our attitude needs to be uh, a little bit, well, filled with grace as well as as we critique, we fill with grace. And just one thing we didn't get onto, which I thought was, as I would just deal briefly, which is, I think is important, and that's one of the other characteristics of Australia is that we are very anxious and depressed. Mm-hmm. We, we are more anxious than depressed than most OECD countries. So the Western world as a whole is anxious and depressed, but Australia is is right at the right at the top of the spectrum. And I think the church is critiquing that and particularly pointed out that secularism is very broad but very shallow. I think um, that was a guy from WA um, is articulates that, that very, McAlpine is articulating that very well. That it's it's a very widely accepted thing, secularism, but it, it doesn't actually answer the questions of life. And Christians are, it's easy for us to point the finger and say, "You idiots! We've been pointing this out to you for the last hundred years." Um, now, now you're coming to. Uh, reap the harvest of the secularism that you've been sowing. But I'm not sure that's gracious. Um, I think our, our, our posture to the non-Christian world needs to be not one of finger pointing, but of care and of reaching out and saying, we, we think we've got the answer. We, we think that the Christian worldview is a more robust, more logical uh, worldview. Um and, and here we offer it to you, rather than stepping back and pointing the finger and saying, well, you're just getting what you deserve because of the philosophical choices that, that you've taken. So um, sorry to go off that tangent, but I, this is just one, one aspect of it that I think, as I've reflected over the last two years, um, has really struck me that, yes, we are right, and we should be confident that we are right, but that we still we need to be really marked by grace because the world is really hurting. Yeah, it's and, really, and really powerful. Put yeah. people off when we have the answer if we yeah. go about presenting the answer in the wrong way. That's really powerful. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, do you want to, any other final thoughts on 
before we wrap it up? Oh, I just think that's a really great place to end it, actually. that we What's our stance towards culture? As we seek to understand it, we do need to have a really good check of our hearts, that we need to have compassion for the crowds like Jesus had compassion. And yeah. it's really beautiful, isn't it, that when when uh, the disciples said, oh, the crowd's hungry, Jesus had compassion on them. And, you know, he didn't say, well, they should have all brought some lunch. It's their fault. Like, he's, <laughs> he could have. But well, I think I think modern Australians are in, Christians in Australia are in danger. Well, we told you not to let go of the gospel so much or you know i hear christians say things like that sometimes and i think but to actually have compassion on people and just to love them is really beautiful and it's a really helpful way to finish and if we're going at people like that it could also cause them to want to double down on on their position rather than actually listening and engaging in that kind of thing point yeah yeah. anyway um let's let's wrap it up um thank you so much ian we really appreciate your time coming on and giving up your time to come on this podcast with us we really appreciate um the way that we actually finish every uh shock absorber podcast is with the one way which is a a symbol that we've adopted from the um jesus people in the 70s where they do you you know the symbol have you ever seen that before Do you remember larry norman back in the day yeah 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 Yeah, uh, the devil have all the music that's right instead of doing a peace sign he used to go one way so we we do that just to remind ourselves of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. So, yeah, no worries. Well, um, we'll wrap it up now. Thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast. Thank you to Stu. Thank you to Tim, who just had to step out quickly. And uh, most of all, thank you very much, Ian, for joining us. And we'll finish up the one way. One way. One way. Thank you. Thanks, Ian.